0: It's such a joy to be back with you. Um, Karin and I were with a team in Sacramento. We were ministering at the church called Capital City Church um, in Sacramento, and the team did a phenomenal job. Some of them helped uh, with worship on the Sunday morning. Um, and just uh, want to give you greetings from them uh, as a community. Uh, they are a similar church in DNA. We are connected through our church planting and strengthening movement called Advance. Uh, And Matt and I um, are friends, and so we spent a good amount of time just talking about what partnership into the future looks like. Um, And Matt and Shannon will be back here with us ministering. So thank you for sending us. It was awesome to be there, but even better to be back. Um, I'm going to pray and then dive right in to part two of Nehemiah. Father, thank you for the privilege of your word. Uh, Thank you that you do speak. Uh, both currently as you minister through individuals to us, but, um, but thank you for the unshakable foundation that your word is. Um, and thank you that it is, um, it, it is an anchor to us when we are being tossed to and fro. And as we submit ourselves to your word this morning, I want to pray uh, for just your empowerment um, as I teach your word and for your empowerment as we listen so that we can be adjusted by your spirit In Jesus' name. So Travis kicked us off last week in our series in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an Old Testament book. It was part of Ezra Nehemiah. There used to be two books together. And what you'll know from last week is that the Jewish people have been exiled. Um, Jerusalem has been destroyed and they were carried away to exile in Persia. And um, they started to return back to Jerusalem, and they started to do this in three waves. The first wave was under Ezra, I mean under Zerubbabel, and then about 60 years later under Ezra, and now 13 years later we are in Nehemiah. Now Nehemiah is not just rebuilding a wall or a city; he is renewing the people of God. Now restoration and renewal is difficult. Uh, it's just easier to buy a new thing you know, which I wish we had done when we thought about renewing these chairs. So my wife, right, if you come to the newcomer's lunch, you may even get to sit on this chair. Uh, Just so you know, the newcomer's lunch is free. If you go with Gabby, you have to pay for your own tacos. So just just saying, okay. My wife found these chairs on the side of the road. They did not look like this. Um, Found these chairs on the side of the road, and she said, we can restore them. And I said, we? And she said, yes, we can restore these chairs. It'll be simple. All we have to do is like pull off the material and then we'll just slap some new material on and it'll be a piece of cake. Right? How many of you guys know it wasn't a piece of cake, right? These are not Ikea chairs, so they aren't made of cardboard. And so they were heavy chairs to begin with. They're also probably about 60 or 70 years old, so they were made really, really well. Which means that it was incredibly difficult to restore these chairs. Um, It probably cost us, in terms of time, energy, and bad words that my children learnt while I was restoring (laughs) these chairs, probably twice as much as it would have cost to actually just go buy those chairs, right? But there is a unique joy that we have by sitting on these chairs because this was once a piece of junk. This was once rubble. Um, and now we have we had the privilege of turning that into something that I think is, is quite beautiful. And, and that's what's happening in, in the context of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's heart is not like my heart it was when I was, uh, you know, rebuilding those chairs. His heart is full of empathy and compassion for his brothers and sisters. In Nehemiah 1, he says that when he heard the words of the state of Jerusalem, he sat down and wept and mourned for many days, and he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And empathy and compassion are important because they fuel us when it comes to risky faith, and it fuels us when we face opposition. We're looking at the story of Nehemiah as a story of how God invites us not only into personal renewal and stirs us into personal renewal, but so that we can join him as we renew his surroundings. So a word about walls, right? When uh, Karin and I arrived in the United States, one of the things that we recognized very quickly is there aren't a whole lot of walls around in in the neighborhoods. Like everyone's yard is open, and, and we were like, oh, what an open, welcoming place. Right, that wasn't exactly the case. And we realized even though they weren't actual physical walls separating our neighbors and our neighborhood, it was quite a separate place. And so today in our current political climate when I mention the word wall, I want you to relax a little bit, okay, and calm down. Every time we mention wall in our climate, we talk about fear and suspicion, superiority, anxiety. This is not what we're talking about. Just remember in those days, um, a city without a wall was a judgment. In those days, a city without a wall was um, at the mercy of bloodthirsty raiders. They could just come in and do whatever they wanted. And a city with walls was a sign of blessing, strength, security and prosperity. It meant that that city could control its own destiny, which is why in Proverbs it says that a man who lacks self-control is like a city without walls. So it's within that context that I want us to understand what we're talking about with Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls. Uh, This isn't a call to erect walls, whether they're physical walls or whether they're social walls, but it's a call to live a life of distinction. It's a call to live a life of distinction with joy and purpose so that the people in our surroundings actually want to live in the city of God which we know is a city without walls. And so this invitation is for us to step into distinctiveness but not not separateness. Is that a word? I just made it a word, if it isn't a word. And this line is very thin. And so in the context of those of us that are Christ followers, the idea of being distinct and the idea of being separate is something that we've battled with for a long time. And that's partly why we wanted to to preach on Nehemiah to help us understand that God has called us to be a distinct people, but not a separate people. So we're going to carry on reading from Nehemiah 2, and I'm reading from the ESV, um, Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king." We know that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, and he gave him the wine to make sure that he wasn't poisoned, or it wasn't bad wine. Um, now, I had, an, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, "'Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but a sadness of the heart.' Then I was very much afraid. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. So he just keeps going, man. Um, And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and with horsemen. Uh, This is something that is difficult for us to understand. Not many of us deal with kings, get in throne rooms, have people that have wine brought to them in case it's poisoned. You know, this is not something that we're familiar with. But what I want to help you understand in the context of this is it was very dangerous uh, for Nehemiah to look sad in the presence of the king. The king did not like having his buzz harshed, okay? He was not the kind of guy that took kindly to the reality that everyone in his presence must be happy and smiling. And he had um, both the right and the authority to either exile Nehemiah or even have him killed because he was in a bad mood. Now, what I want to say in this context is there's a difference between sulking and moping and genuine distress. And we know that Nehemiah was genuinely distressed. In South Africa, we have this saying, um, and if you see someone in a bad mood, we say to them, would you like a wheelbarrow for your lip? In other words, (laughs) their lip is on the ground that this wheelbarrow will help them (laughs) carry their lip, right? That's free, you can use that one, you know. (laughs) So, and the other thing is about silent treatment. Now, I'm going to give you guys a hint about silent treatment, and I've said this to my daughters, if you are angry with someone, and you want them to pay, silent treatment is not the way to do that, okay? Because if you're silent with me, I'm like, that's cool, that's great. If you are wanting me to pay and you're angry about something, then just keep talking. Just (laughs) keep talking and talking. Silent treatment doesn't really work, you know? So, um, that really failed. So, so, Nehemiah is there, he's sad, the king notices that he is sad, and the king, the king, asks Nehemiah, this cupbearer, what's wrong? Had Artaxerxes been in a bad mood, he would have said, you know what? You are harshing my buzz. Out you go. Off with your head. He could have banished him or ordered him killed, but he didn't. He, he asks him what's, what's wrong, and Nehemiah responds, and then he asks him what he needs. And I want to say, even, even the way in which King Artaxerxes responded is, as God invites us into renewal of our city, those are two really important questions that we need to be asking. What's wrong, and what do we need? What's wrong with this family that I'm trying to minister to? What's wrong with this city? What's wrong with, and what do we need? And these are two interesting questions that he hits right on the head. In terms of renewal, what is wrong, and what do we need To fix that. As God invites us into renewal, we do three things. We pray compassionately, we prepare diligently, and we stand firmly. And those are the three things that we're going to be talking about this morning. We pray compassionately. Verse four says, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then he gives this list. Now, how many of you know that this is not the time for deep groans of prevailing prayer? When the king says to you, what do you need? So this is the kind of prayer that a lot of us have prayed for. It goes like this. Oh God, oh God, oh God, help. You know, that's it. That, that's really what it was. Now, I, wa- I do want to say that popcorn prayers without a foundation of deep intimacy with the Father are what we call prayers of magic. Okay, We just pop something up and we hope something happens. What Nehemiah had done, now the news had reached Nehemiah, this is now four months later. We know from chapter 1, what had he done for those four months? He was praying and fasting. I don't know if he fasted for four months. I mean, if he did, you know, more power to him. But, But the reality is, for four months, he had been praying and waiting on the Lord. We also know what else he had done in the time of praying and waiting on the Lord is he was planning. Nick, how do you know that? The scripture doesn't say that. Well, in that moment where the king says to him, what does he want? Is he ready in terms of what he wants? He's like, and this, and this, and this, and this. And the king says, sure, and I will give you an armed escort. Prayer and planning is is a potent combination. Uh, If he had not planned, he wouldn't have known what to ask for, but if he hadn't prayed, he wouldn't have had the boldness to stand up and ask for it in the first place. And so there are times when, when we look at our city, at our surroundings, at our family, we're asking those questions. What is wrong and what do I need? Where we merge these two amazing things of prayer and planning. And we say, okay, God, I see. How am I going to rebuild the city? Well, I'm going to need wood. Where am I going to get wood? I'm going to need it from there. And, and we don't start to work in our own strength. But God, just like us for a facility, we know what we need. And we're saying, God, we know. I have my list, trust me. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, God, and this, and this, and this. And I'm I'm praying, Jesus, will you help us so that we can be more effective in this city? This is a pattern that we will see throughout Nehemiah's life where he utters short, focused, uncomplicated prayers. Lord, help me in this situation. Lord, remember me. Lord, frustrate my enemies. And as I've said, he's cultivated cultivated this intimate and consistent relationship with God. So these are not just prayers of magic that he's popping out. This comes out of a history of intimacy with him. Prayer emboldens us, as I've said him, and he says to the king, I want letters, I want a pass-through, I want timber, not only for the temple, not only for the wall, but also I'm going to build myself a house, and so I need, I need timber for that. He's not grasping for leadership and title, but he knows that in order to fulfill what he needs, he needs that. Um, think about how presumptuous this is. Do you know who destroyed Jerusalem? The same kingdom, not the same king, Previous king, but the same kingdom that he is now asking for the raw materials to restore Jerusalem. There's a boldness that is stirred in him because he's been found in a place of prayer. He's not timid or apologetic in terms of what he's asking, but he's not arrogant either. And this is one of the lines, just like I said, in terms of distinctiveness and separate being separate, it's it's this whole idea of being bold um, without being arrogant. He got provision. He got authority. He got protection. And who did he get those from? He got those from God. The conduit was the king. Is there someone in your life that God is saying, ask him, ask her, be bold? Is there someone that you in your life can say, what do you need? What do you want? Just think about that for a moment, because as agents of renewal, we aren't necessarily going to be the ones that are asking. Sometimes we're going to be the ones that are saying to people, what do you need to see this fixed? What do you need to see this renewed? Oh God, stir it in us. Then he prepared deliberately. This is a longer piece piece of scripture from verse 10 through to verse 18. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Will get to them and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I, this is Nehemiah, went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gates i'm going to skip this and basically what he does is he goes and he inspects the various gates uh, that are in the city wall now obviously um, you can have a wall and if there's no gate that wall isn't really helping you so gates were really important with regards to the protection of a city verse 15 when i went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall um sorry um and I went out in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were going to do the work. We'll cover that next week. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins because its gates have burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that he had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And this is what I love. And they said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. One of the key things we need to do as we engage in renewal for the sake of the city and for the glory of God is that we need to investigate and get the facts. Let's be smart about this. Uh, Now going at night, There's a fine line again. Are you getting this thing with lines? There's a fine line between paranoia and smart. He was smart. He went at night, and he went and he inspected what was going on. He took time to investigate and research what was really happening. His brother had told him, hey, this is what had happened. He'd arrived at Jerusalem, and he'd seen the general state, but he went specifically to inspect what had happened. Sometimes we, in the context of the church, don't do that. Sometimes the state of the church and our engagement with the world, we often function on rumor, on hearsay, and misinformation. One of the ways that we're going to be most effective in the renewal of our city for the glory of God is going to be that we actually have the facts. Clarify the difference between what you've been told and what is reality. Just recently, for, for Karen and I, the whole thing about the new school curriculum and what was going to be taught and what wasn't going to be taught and all the hullabaloo about that. And, and what, what I did was I went to a friend of ours who was a teacher and I said, just help me you know, understand this because I don't really know what to believe anymore and we have the opportunity to investigate those things. And so personally for me that was one of those things. is What is the truth here? What is actually happening? And for each of us we have that responsibility as we prepare ourselves for renewal. We need to own the failures of our own tribe. In Nehemiah uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where Nehemiah prays and he owns the sins of Israel. And he says that, that we, the people of Israel, have sinned against you, and even I and my father's house have sinned, and we have acted very corruptly against you. Now, we know that Nehemiah himself had not actually done anything wrong, and he, wasn't, he, he hadn't actually sinned to the point at which they were led into exile, but what he did is he collectively owned that sin and repented on behalf of that nation. He includes himself. He doesn't say, man, your city's in a bad way. He's like, man, look, we are in a bad way. He includes himself in us. He doesn't say, and uh, this, just be clear, this wasn't my fault. Just be clear, this was our father's and grandfather's and great-grandfather's fault. No, he, he owns that. And as the church, so this is probably one of the most difficult things we need to do, is, is we need to own the failures of our tribe. And, and we need to accept that the church, with all her warts and scars, is still part of our tribe. Now, I think um, that as a community... Uh, we are full of grace and truth, uh, that that we both practice and teach truth in a gracious way, and we don't back down from that. But the truth is, as we went through the sex series the last four weeks, um, and as we've taught about that, we've had to apologize for the way in which the church has both Um, spoken of and engaged in the whole issue of sexuality. So that's part of what I'm talking about, owning the failures of your tribe. It doesn't help to just say to someone, that wasn't me. What helps is to say, man, that's terrible. That should not have been the way that it should have been. But let me invite you into something that is different and unique. And he invites others in. The situation is bad, but he doesn't pretend that it's not. He doesn't be like, no, we just need a splash of paint. Uh, You know, we we just need a a little bit of restoration here. No, we'll be good. You know, we could just put up a facade. He's like, no, no, we're in deep trouble here. Just like Abraham. Like Abraham looked at his body and considered himself dead and yet believed God. And so what we've got to do is, is face the fact and not pretend the situation is better in order to multiply our faith. That's not how we multiply our faith. We multiply our faith when we look and see the greatness of our God. And, and, the, and the more dire the situation is, the more power it's going to take for our Lord to come and change that using us, and the more glory will come to Him. Because if the situation isn't that bad, then anyone could have just um, fixed it up. He reminds people of the faithfulness of God. He reminds them of their joint inheritance. And He reminds them that He needs them. He doesn't include others to make them feel better about themselves, and this is a lesson I wish I'd learned in my twenties and thirties. My my desire to include other people was um, was about which was good, which which was about this overriding sense of we have we want to be a place that develops leaders. We want to be a place where, where people can operate in their gifts. We want to be a place where people can flourish in what God has called them to do. And that is true, and we will still, we will still pursue that. But it wasn't really because I believed I needed anyone. It was because in my benevolence I was developing leaders because they needed some path of mentorship. And Nehemiah is not that kind of guy. And what I wish I'd learned earlier on is that I am not developing leaders for their sake or for your sake. Part of what God has given me is the responsibility to develop leaders, but it's because I need you. And that's what Nehemiah realized. And that's what what I wish I'd realized much younger on in my journey, is that we need each other. I need Neil and Travis and Sean. We need you guys. We cannot do this alone. And we'll see through the context of Nehemiah, the job is too big. We are so spread out. We need each other. We need to stand firmly, finally. Now we'll hear about these cool names. Who wants to call their kids (laughs) Sanbalat? Sorry, Jesse, you know. But when Sanbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered or laughed at us. They despised and mocked us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I Nehemiah said to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or claim in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah knew he was going to face opposition. This was not a surprise to him. That's why he asked for the letters. These letters were addressed to these two governors. Uh, both Sanballat and Tobiah are governors under the Persian regime, Tobiah was a Jew. Initially, um, connected, he, yeah, he had Jewish blood. He occupied the position of what was called the king's servant for the region of Amnon. He was related by marriage to some of Nehemiah's co-laborers and had many friends among the Jews. That is a tough enemy to have. Sanballat also had many friends and allies among the Jews, and he, uh, that had remained behind when a lot of Israel had ended up in, um, in Persia. And like Nehemiah, we will face opposition from those that are in the faith and those that are outside the faith. And in the faith I use in, in inverted commas. And this is how it will start. There will be mocking, ridicule, accusations, lies about the church and about our vision for renewal. None of this should be surprising to us. Jesus told us this. James tells us this. John tells us this, Peter tells us this, Paul tells us this. All of these men that wanted to work for the renewal of what God was doing knew that they would face opposition. But we also know who the real enemy is. Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so he understood that it is the enemy of our souls, it is the devil that is using people and in our environments to tackle what it means for humans to live a life of flourishing. But Paul also knew that it came through specific people. And oftentimes what he did is he would name them. So to Timothy, when he wrote a letter to Timothy, and uh, he's saying to Timothy, hey man, you've got to lead this church in Ephesus well, make sure you do a good job. Watch out for Alexander the goldsmith. He did a lot of damage to me. Now, he's not saying to Timothy, go and take him out. He's just saying, be careful, because he's being used as an instrument. But remember where the real battle is. The battle is not in the physical. The battle is in the spiritual, which is why we started this with prayer, which is why we engage God to engage the enemy. Make sense? Initially, we will face contempt, but if we hold our ground, we will face confrontation. This is a promise. That Jesus gave us is because if if they hated him, they will hate us. Now let me give an aside here now, you can be hated by Holding your ground on what you know to be a biblically faithful Reality or you can be hated for being a goober. That's not what Jesus is saying. Yeah G-o-o-b-e-r for those that are taking notes There is a difference There is a difference between being hated for the way in which you conduct yourself and for the positions that you hold that are biblically faithful. And we have to understand that difference. And we did a long series on suffering and trials, and there is a massive difference between that. But understand this. Initially, they laughed, they jeered, they despised, they mocked, but it will turn into confrontation. Now, we'll see in Nehemiah 6... This is, this is like something out of 007. Sanballat and Tobiah work with some of the enemies, some of the friends of, of Nehemiah, and they try and trap him in the temple. Um, and they try and kill him in the temple. And God rescues Nehemiah from that. And we'll see that when we get to uh, chapter 6. The devil's goal has always been the same. From the beginning in the garden until now, he will use any means necessary at his disposal to twist in our minds the nature and the character of God to convince us that God is not loving, that God is not powerful, that he's not good, that he's not kind, that he's not able to do what he's saying, and that somehow in our own autonomy we will reach a level of flourishing without him that is better than with him. Whatever the issue is, that's always what it comes down to. This morning as we were talking about sin, one of the things, sin is such an an interesting word. People are are trying to move away from that word that, you know what the core of sin is? Autonomy. I want to do things my way. And and most of us think of sin as an action of some sort. Like if you sleep with someone or murder someone or no. Sin in nature, in its nature, is wanting to live my life, my way, according to my rules. And that's what sin is. And so this morning, even as there was an, an invitation to see that, most of us are saying, Well, I haven't done anything wrong. Well, How individualistically am I building my life? And based on what I want or what God has called me to, what what are the restrictions that I really push against, even in the context of this community and what God is saying to me? I have called you to be part of a community of faith. I've called you not to live your life individually. That's why being part of a membership is both such a freeing thing, but it's also something that kind of squeezes us in where we actually say, okay, God, I can't do whatever I want to do. And that's good for my character. In conclusion, we started the story in a king's throne room. Jeremy, you can come up. And so I want to invite us to end in a king's throne room, but a a different king's throne room. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says that, "...let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace." that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You know, unlike Nehemiah, we don't have to worry about what our face looks like when we come to the throne of the king. Unlike Nehemiah, we don't have to, uh, you know, in in the days of those kings, we don't have to put on a mask and, and pretend and worry because there's the possibility, because... When the king asked Nehemiah what's the matter, Nehemiah was afraid. But we can come in, whether we are sad, whether we are mad, whether you, we're confused, tired, or weary, and we can come in into this throne of grace. God will not banish or execute us because we, we have this burden that we're carrying. This is the other cool thing. We don't have to wait to speak. We don't have to be invited to speak. We don't have to sit there quietly until someone says to us, what, what, what's the problem? We can come in to this throne of grace and say, man, it's been so difficult. It's been so hard. I know I asked for your help in this area and I've failed again. I have this terrible situation that I'm dealing with with this person and I don't know what to do. When I look at my city around me, God, I have to say that I don't even know that renewal is possible. And we can come and we can actually say that to him. And he's not mad. He's he's not going to be upset. He's going to do exactly what he said. We will be able to find mercy and grace in our time of need. We don't have to pacify him. We don't have to say, long live the king. We don't have to say, if it pleases the king. You know why? Because we can come in and we can say, Dad, it's me. You know that thing you gave me? I broke it. I'm sorry. And he doesn't say like I've said before. Are you? Are you really? You know. He's like, I know my son. Come sit here. Sit with me for a while. Understand my patience, my grace, my love for you. Understand that everything has been paid for because my son sacrificed himself for you. And understand that I will never be weary of you. I will never be in a place where I will say, are you, are you really? We come to our dad who is also a king, but we don't approach him as a king, we approach him as a dad.
1: And we rest
0: on the reality though that he is a powerful king. And when we approach him as dad, we get all the benefits of his kingship as well. But if we only approach him as king, we don't get the benefits of his fatherhood. So let's approach him as father this morning. What is it that you need from your father king? Do you need comfort? You look at the walls around you and there's just ruin and rubble. And you're like, God, you called me to be a city on a hill. You called me to be a light in a dark place. You called me to be salt. And I don't know that I'm any different. Maybe I'm, I feel even worse than the people around me. Maybe you need comfort to actually say, well, yeah, but your father king can help. And he can help with building resources. And he can help with letters of authority. And he can help with an armed guard. And whatever it is that you need, he can help with. Maybe this morning you need wisdom. Maybe this morning you're in that place where someone has told you something and and you're starting to believe it, but in reality you're looking at this and it doesn't make sense. And you're saying, oh God, give me wisdom to navigate the complexity of what it means to live as a Christ follower in this complex society. What does that look like? What What is a big deal and what is not? How how do I even know? God, I need your wisdom. And the joy about all of this is God says in His Word, Do you lack wisdom? Ask. Ask God. And He will give it to you. Or maybe you need boldness this morning. Maybe you just need a sense of being able to stand and say, I need this. And even as we spoke earlier before, maybe you even know who to ask that for. Now remember, James tells us not to ask for our own needs. But but God has put a dream in your heart and you know you should be asking someone. Ask that. Or maybe, as I said, you're the person that needs to ask someone else. Hey, what do you need to see that dream fulfilled? What do you need so that you can fulfill that thing that God has called you to? A boldness to take a stand. This is unpopular, but this is the truth. This is not cool, but this is the truth. And God, I need your strength to be able to stand. Won't you pray with me? My Father, I want to thank you that that as we come into your throne of grace and as we see you as Father, as Dad, we have the privilege of receiving everything that we ask for in accordance with your will. And so this morning, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that need comfort. They're looking around at the ruins of what was once this beautiful wall, this beautiful city with amazing gates, and they're just seeing rubble and ruin, derision, embarrassment. God, won't you comfort those that mourn? Won't you give wisdom to those that need to navigate this complex world? where the enemy of our souls is constantly preaching to us, that we're able to stand firmly on the word of truth. And I want you to give us boldness this morning. Give us boldness to ask of you the things that maybe we're even worried about, whether you can actually do them. Give us boldness to ask that. Give us boldness to ask people in authority that, that we know that you have led us to. And if we happen to be those in authority, give us boldness to ask the question, what do you need? My Jesus, I want to thank you that none of this is possible without your sacrifice. And I want to pray that as we sing to you, that you would stir in the hearts of people that have yet to know you.